There's an old saying, isn't it? It's nice to go travelling, but it's so much nicer to come home. It's great to be back amongst everybody. Um, I have missed you. I don't know whether you've missed me. You might have been glad of the change, but I've certainly missed you. Can I wish you a happy new year? I know um, a few people have already had a rather traumatic start to the year, but hopefully things will improve as the year goes on. And we continue to journey together with God in a year that will unfold before us. Some words from the book of Proverbs. With great understanding, wisdom is calling out as she stands at the crossroads and on every hill. She stands at the city gate where everyone enters the city and she shouts, I'm calling to each one of you. Good sense and sound judgment can be yours. Listen. Because what I say is worthwhile and right. I always speak the truth and refuse to tell a lie. Every word I speak is honest. Not one is misleading or deceptive. If you have understanding, you will see that my words are just what you need. Today has a special name. Today is called Epiphany Sunday. It's the day when we remember how wise people from a foreign land came to visit Jesus. And so all the pictures that we have up are ones that I found online when I googled the journey of the Magi. Now we're going to have a time of praying to God to say thank you, to say sorry, and to ask God to be with us. So let's be still and quiet as we talk to God and listen for God. Creator God, on this first Sunday of the year, we meet in the name of your Son to offer you our worship, praise and thanks. At this turning of the year, as the light begins to return after the deep darkness of winter, we praise and thank you for signs of life and hope. For hyacinths flowering in pots in our homes, and for the determined green shoots peeping through the dark earth in gardens and parks. For the warm glow of electric lights or colourful candles in our homes, and the distant beauty of starlight and moonlight in a clear night sky. For the time we have spent relaxing with those we love best and for the promise of routine returning with its reassuring rhythms of work and play. For the celebratory meals we've enjoyed eating, and for our cupboards, fridges and larders full of good things to eat in the days ahead. We take a moment of silence to offer our own thanks and praise. Redeeming God, as we look back with gratitude and forward in hope, we realise that beneath the veneer, we are still carrying hurts and regrets in our hearts. As we step into the new year, as already ordinary everyday matters overtake us, we confess to ourselves and to you those things that prevent us experiencing life and hope. 
the unkind or careless words we spoke, which cannot be unsaid, and the equally cruel thoughts that only we know about. The opportunities we failed to take that might have blessed others and those that would have enriched our own lives. The negative attitudes that diminished our humanity and the guilt that held us back. The arrogance that asserted our rights or our superiority and the cowardice that denied others or even ourselves. We take a moment of silence to recognise and confess our own shortcomings or regrets. Sustaining God, as we let go of those things that prevent us from experiencing the life and hope of which we dream, please assure us that we are indeed set free from them, and that you will continue to accompany us in the adventure of ordinary life that lies ahead of us. We offer our prayer in the name of Christ Jesus, our Saviour, Redeemer and Friend. Amen. Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60, first six verses. Arise, Jerusalem, and shine like the sun. The glory of the Lord is shining on you. Other nations will be covered by darkness, but on you the light of the Lord will shine. The brightness of his presence will be with you. Nations will be drawn to your light and kings to the dawning of your new day. Look around you and see what is happening. Your people are gathering to come home. Your sons will come from far away. Your daughters will be carried like children. You will see this and be filled with joy. You will tremble with excitement. The wealth of the nations will be brought to you. From across the sea, their riches will come. Great caravans of camels will come from Midian and Ephah. They will come from Sheba bringing gold and incense. People will tell the good news of what the Lord has done. And our New Testament reading is the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem in Judea during the time when Herod was king. Soon afterwards... Some men who studied the stars came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the baby born to be the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it came up in the east, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard about this, he was very upset and 
So was everyone else in Jerusalem. He called together all the chief priests and the teachers of the law and asked them, Where will the Messiah be born? In the town of Bethlehem in Judea, they answered. For this is what the prophet wrote. Bethlehem in the land of Judah, you are by no means the least of the leading cities of Judah. For from you will come a leader who will guide my people Israel. So Herod called the visitors from the east to a secret meeting and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem with these instructions. Go and make a careful search for the child, and when you find him, let me know, so that I too may go and worship him. And so they left, and on their way they saw the same star that they had seen in the east. When they saw it, how happy they were, what joy was theirs. It went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. They went into the house, and when they saw the child with his mother Mary, they knelt down and worshipped him. They brought out their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and presented them to him. Then they returned to their country by another road, since God had warned them in a dream not to go back to Herod. Amen. I wonder if any of you ever say to yourself, oh, if only. It's not something I do very often because it's pretty futile. You can't change what's already happened. And going over and over it in my head, wishing I'd done or said something differently, isn't going to change it. But I must admit, in the last couple of days, I've come very close to saying, oh, if only I prepared this sermon before I went away. If only I hadn't chosen to go with the title suggested in Roots of Wise Before the Event, with its suggestion that we try to draw together the themes of hermeneutics and specifically a form which is known as midrash and of wisdom. If only I'd gone for something simple. To be fair, it's not very often that I come back from home, come back home from holiday and preach the next Sunday. I learned years ago how hard that is, even if the service has been prepared before you go away. But this year I forgot my own wisdom and ended up spending Friday and Saturday attempting something that really needed an awful lot more prayer and an awful lot more preparation. How easy it is to be wise after the event. Epiphany is traditionally the day when we mark the visit of the Magi to the child Jesus, a story told only in the Gospel of Matthew, and which, in actual fact, is very scant in terms of the details that we probably take for granted. There is no mention of camels. There are no names. In fact, there is nobody identified as a king or a potentate. Rather, they are mysterious eastern people, 
quite possibly astrologers, people who looked at the stars and tried to foresee the future in it. They seem to have been wealthy and they were willing to embark on what, quite frankly, looks like a fool's errand to search for what we know, but they don't, to be a peasant child. We can only guess at what motivated them to start this journey that would lead eventually to Bethlehem via Jerusalem and encounter a king capable of ordering infanticide to secure his own position. And if we could carry the story on and meet up with them after their return home, I wonder what they would have to say as they recounted the tale. I wonder what they would say, well, if only we'd known this or that. If only we'd taken the other. If only. I wonder what wisdom they might have had after the event. Do you think it's legitimate to speculate on what might have happened next? Or is that playing fast and loose with Holy Scripture? Because one of the avenues that we're invited to think about today is how we read and interpret Scripture. And specifically to be aware of an ancient Jewish approach to reading the Scriptures called Midrash. Slightly dodgy talking about this one. I've got a hermeneutics lecturer sitting over there, but I'm sure he'll be very gracious and ignore all my errors. This is an approach to interpreting scripture that actively encourages us to read between the lines and attempt to fill in gaps in the narrative. It's a creative approach that seeks not to distill out eternal laws or object lessons, but rather to discover or uncover or recover truths about God's nature and ours. Midrash is not about creating a work of fiction. It's about bringing together ancient texts with our intellect and our imagination to discover and express new understandings, new wisdom. Perhaps that sounds a bit confusing, especially to people who aren't hermeneutics lecturers. So let's start off by turning our minds back to that wonderful nativity play, sorry, nativity service, uh, that the Sunday school led for us. Was it a play? Was it a service? It was both, actually. Much of that enactment was what we would consider to be a traditional nativity story. The innkeeper, who had no room and was a bit grumpy. The stable, complete with donkey, sheep and camels. The shepherds and kings all gathered around the manger. And we love it, or I love it anyway, because it connects us with Christmas's past, and it's also familiar. But you won't find it in the Bible. It is, in fact, a form of midrash, combining part of Luke's account with part of Matthew's, and adding in extra bits as we imagine what might have happened. And that gives us the potential to discover new truths that are not verifiable facts, but hint at something important for us. Do you remember our nativity reenactment? The central character was a Roman soldier. 
Now, you won't find a Roman soldier in Luke or Matthew's birth story. So is this just a device in the story? Is this just somebody trying to find a new angle? Or is there something more going on here? We know, but very rarely stop to think about, the fact that Jerusalem was an occupied city. And if you walked along any street, you would meet Romans under authority from Caesar to make life pretty miserable for anybody who got in their way. And as we watch the story unfold, we realise that there must, in fact, have been Roman soldiers who met Mary and Joseph. And somebody did, in fact, take their details. But the aha moment in that reenactment, the new thing that we discover is when the Roman soldier gets drawn into the mystery of what was happening. And there in our closing tableau, we had Jewish shepherds, Eastern kings, and an occupying Roman soldier, as well as a range of farm animals and some very British angels, all gathered around the Christ child. You see, there's a new insight there. Christ isn't just for the Jews, and not just for educated, wealthy, and probably religious foreigners, but Christ is for the occupying army, the person who symbolizes our oppressor. That's a new way of seeing that story. Now, I have no idea whatsoever if the person who wrote the play had any intention of anybody seeing any of that in it. Probably not. But can I suggest the possibility that God's spirit wisdom might have shown us something new and significant if we just had the ears to hear and the eyes to see? Now, you might think that's just a load of codswallop, and that is absolutely fine. But here's a little thing for you to do when you go home, if you feel like it. Choose one of your favourite Christmas carols, or one of your favourite Christmas poems, or a painting of part of the Christmas story, and look at it as a kind of a midrash. What has the artist or the writer added on to what is in scripture? And what new insight into the good news of the Christ child might be discovered as God's spirit guides us in our interpretation? I think it's worth doing if you have the time and inclination. Whatever we may think about the kind of midrash that I've described, scholars are generally agreed that there is plenty of evidence of it within the scriptures themselves both in places where ideas are borrowed and extended and in places where verses are quoted or more precisely misquoted. Even, dare I say it, by the likes of the Apostle Paul and, don't tell anybody, Jesus. In Luke 4, he quotes two chunks of Isaiah, not from the same bit, and pushes them together. Matthew quite often does things like saying, well, this occurrence fills that prophecy. But there are other times when we just get hints and glimpses of other parts of the scripture. Part of what Matthew 2 does is a midrash on Isaiah 60, and those are the two passages that we heard earlier. 
And perhaps we begin to see how some of our own subconscious midrash happens. Matthew doesn't talk about camels, but Isaiah does. And somewhere along the line, those two ideas have got pushed together and we have our wise men arriving on camels because that is the new insight we get by pulling those two stories together. What we heard from Isaiah is actually part of a much longer passage, a promise given to the people of Israel during their exile in Babylon. And what a promise it was. Israel restored and powerful and people flocking from other nations to praise the God of Israel whose power is demonstrated in their prosperity. Oh dear, that didn't happen. The exiles went back, but far from becoming powerful, life was as hard as ever. And in time, as the Roman Empire spread its tentacles, so they were drawn into becoming an occupied nation. So, was Isaiah wrong? Or was it the case that this promise was actually yet to be fulfilled off into the future? And what happened was because they believed Isaiah was speaking something from God, they pushed that promise further ahead to part of a distant messianic age when the one who would usher it in would come and change things. The person they named as Messiah, the anointed one. Now, if we were Jews today, we would read that passage and say that age is still to come. That promise is still to be fulfilled. But we aren't Jews, we're Christians. And so we read it set alongside the second chapter of Matthew and as people who are shaped by centuries of Christian art and decades of singing songs like We Three Kings of Orient are, not the football team for anybody who um, is from south of the border. But we spot what those early readers wouldn't have seen. We see the camels and the kings and we put them together. I'm just going to read a little bit of that passage to you again. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. These are kind of exotic places. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. So we have gold and we have frankincense and we have camels. So Matthew is taking this ancient prophecy and relating it to the coming of the Eastern astrologers who are looking for the infant king of the Jews. Have you spotted what's missing? No myrrh. No myrrh is mentioned in Isaiah. Matthew adds that in. That's a kind of a midrash, drawing together different elements to allow them to interpret each other. Matthew is reading back because he knows how the story ends. And so he makes connections that the ancients could not have done. It seems to me, and it has done since I was young and realised that the birth stories are actually in two Gospels and are distinct, that there are two dangers. One of them is that we are so convinced that everything there is literally true that we tie ourselves in incredible knots trying to make one cohesive story out of two very different ones 
written for different purposes and different people. So how do we sort of reconcile the fact that Mary and Joseph go back up to Nazareth, according to Luke, and off to Egypt, according to Matthew? Well, we kind of have them going one place and then the other place, and, and that may be so, but we can't prove it. But we put them together and we discover new truths as we do so, so that we have our shepherds and our wise men in the stable together. We do discover new things, but also we lose the distinction of what both Luke and Matthew, guided by God's Holy Spirit, have to say to us. We're so busy trying to say, well, it must have been like this and it must all fit, that we miss out. The other extreme is to dismiss as fabrication any aspect of the stories that is not independently verifiable or consistent with a contemporary Western scientific worldview. And here comes the danger of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. We demythologize the story and destroy the very truths the stories were designed to communicate truths about humanity and truths about God. It probably seems to us incredible that there would be people who would see something happening in the natural world and say, this is a sign and a symbol of God at work. But I discovered uh, only this week that there are people in China who, at the time of the birth of King Yong Il, whatever his name is, China, Korea, wherever it is, shouldn't go off track because I always get it wrong. Anyway, this Eastern worldview, they saw things at his birth in birds in the sky, in the flowers that grew, that said, and this is a sign that this is a significant birth. We have to be very careful that our Western scientific worldview doesn't lead us down different kinds of blind alleys. Well, that's all fine, and I've been talking for quite a long time, but what has any of this got to do with wisdom. I find it very difficult to talk about wisdom or about becoming wise without reminding myself of the fact that wisdom is not just a gift from God and not just an attribute of God, but in Scripture is personified as Sophia. The spirit wisdom who calls and says, come and I will help you to live a good life. We would tend to refer to the Sophia spirit wisdom of God as the Holy Spirit. If God's spirit inspires the scriptures and if God's spirit influences our thinking, then it must be that as we bring these together in direct relationship to our own experience, that we have the potential to become more wise in our own thinking and doing. I think there is a relationship, a parallel, between midrash and theological reflection. It's big words day today, isn't it? It's when we bring our lived experience into conversation with the scriptures and the traditions of the church under the guidance of God's spirit that new insight and new understanding can emerge. I think that's exciting and I think it's challenging. It excites me because it reminds me that God's spirit is alive and active in all aspects of human life. And it's challenging 
because it demands that I engage emotionally, intellectually, critically, and creatively if I am to gain wisdom. I think there is a sense of ongoing action reflection that allows us to gain wisdom from the past we cannot change to inform the present and the future we have yet to shape. If we hold together the conviction that God's Spirit was active in writing those scriptures, that God's Spirit is active in us as we read and interpret it, that the creative approach of Midrash has some validity, then we have the potential to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be inspired and enthused as we read and reflect with the purpose of growing in wisdom. If we allow that to inform our attitudes and actions, then maybe we're freed from the futility of saying, if only, or of being wise after the event, and discover to our delight that in fact we are at least a little bit more wise before the event. As we have just been hearing, over the period of Christmas we've had at the centre of our thoughts the events in our small country in the Middle East, uh, Palestine. And today we've been thinking of a visit to that country of the wise men from somewhere, probably somewhere in the East. And I don't know how many of you noticed last week that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu last week was accused of being messianic in his statements about the events between uh, Hamas, etc., and the Israelis. This is something that doesn't go away. And so I think it's appropriate this morning that we concentrate our time of prayer for others on this much-talked-about, controversial, and most understood, misunderstood part of the world. So let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we turn our thoughts to this small country and its neighbours in the Middle East, we become aware somehow that it must have been and is very special for you. It would appear that this is where some of the earliest civilizations could well have been founded. We remember that this was the ground where your chosen people worked out their relationship with you, sometimes with and often without the help of their neighboring countries. Above all, it was the place where you chose to bless humankind with the birth of your Son, our Savior. And yet despite that, or possibly because of that, This has been a land and an area torn with torment of war and strife. From long before the birth of Jesus and right up till now. As always, you know and understand so much more of what is happening than we ever will. But we believe that we are encouraged to bring people and places concerned for you now. 
We remember the events in Syria. We think of people shelled while they wait in a queue for bread or bombed while they try to get fuel for their cars and stoves. For the thousands who have fled to Turkey and Lebanon and for the pressure these refugees in turn put on their host countries. And so it goes on. We pray that you will bless the peacemakers and the refugee organisations. We remember the conflicts in Afghanistan and Pakistan. We are appalled that aid workers are gunned down because they get involved in an anti-polio vaccination programme. But we are equally disturbed that predatory drones controlled from a base in a faraway country can suddenly bring terror from the sky, often killing the innocent bystander. Heavenly Father, we pray that love may be stronger than fear amongst those involved. And we are disturbed that Israel seems to put its own welfare above that of its neighbours, perhaps because it still thinks of a messianic conclusion to the prophecies We're also disturbed that so many countries want to fuel the flames by supplying arms and munitions. Heavenly Father, we lay all of this before you and we pray for the efforts of all those trying to bring peace. But we pray that it will be true peace rather than the desire to impose solutions to suit the peacemakers. And help us and help them to realize that this has led to so many problems in the past. Heavenly Father, these prayers we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In ancient times, simple shepherds were sent by angels... Educated foreigners followed an unexplained star. As we step into the mystery of this new year, may God's wisdom fill us, lead us, direct and encourage us, this day and each new day.